Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is calling for change in education. He wants parents to have a greater role and has some suggestions to make that happen. Ripple effects from the SVB failure. The Fed reviewing the bank's regulations. Stock futures up following volatility. Other banks facing potential downgrades. A financial expert weighs in. President Biden sits down for an interview with The Daily Show. Find out what he said about student debt, LGBT issues, and energy security. And responding to U.S. travel warnings after the deadly kidnappings near the border, the Mexican president says his country is safer than the United States. More fallout of the Silicon Valley bank collapse. Stock futures and shares of regional banks are up due to the volatility surrounding SVB and Signature Bank's failure. I wanted to learn more about how the aftermath will affect other banks, so I spoke to a financial expert. Joining me now is Michael Bussler, public policy analyst and professor of finance at Stockton University. Appreciate your time today, Michael. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Moody's Investor Service is now reviewing six other banks after SVB's collapse. There could be potential downgrades. What can you tell us about the ripple effect of these bank failures? Well, so what, what really happened with uh, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank, it wasn't that they were insolvent. It's that they had a liquidity crisis. So what exactly does that mean? Insolvent would mean, as we did back in the financial crisis in 2008, that banks made some loans that customers defaulted on, um, and as a result, that led to insolvency. What happened here, there was no default on loans. We had a liquidity crisis. So when um, depositors put money in, into the banks, all depositors, most of that money is not there. So what do the banks do with it? They make loans with it, and they buy se securities. Silicon Valley Bank, uh, which is primarily the bank of startups, um, and in the tech industry. And what was happening in the tech industry is revenue is starting to uh, decline somewhat. And as a result, these companies are laying people off and they're a little cash short. So they're starting to pull some cash out of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, now, Silicon Valley Bank didn't have enough cash to take care of all that. So they said, we have to uh, liquidate our bonds to have sufficient cash flow. The problem was, when they bought the bonds, um, they were paying only one or two percent interest. Today, bonds are paying in the four or five percent rate. So, if you want to sell a bond that's only paying two percent interest, and the rest of the bonds today are paying four percent interest, you have to sell at a very steep discount, and that's what happened to them. Their bonds lost about uh, 20 percent or more of their value, and as a result, they uh, couldn't pull enough cash out to meet this uh, demands of the depositors, and they had a liquidity crisis. So, Michael, thanks for explaining how this revenue decline in the tech industry led to this liquidity crisis. How are these other banks going to be impacted if there are downgrades, and how will that affect Americans? Well, so um, most other banks are not in the same position in that they're not so heavily dependent on the technology industry. Still, um, banks will see, as businesses uh, start to uh, see the effects of perhaps the coming recession, they're going to want to pull more, more cash out. And if banks are heavily invested in bonds, 
um, they're going to have to sell these bonds at a discount, and it could uh, potentially bring on some more liquidity crises in other banks. I don't think other banks will be that much negatively affected uh, because, as I say, they're not as heavily invested in the uh, tech industry, or rather, uh, tech industry depositors. Um, and the, the other thing that was somewhat unusual, um, the Federal Deposit and Insurance Corporation guarantees depositors money up to $250,000. Now, just yesterday, they said they'll guarantee no matter how much uh, you have deposited in, in the bank. A company like uh, Roku um, uh, probably has four or five hundred million dollars in that bank. And if I was them, I would be nervous, except that the FDIC said that we're going to cover this no matter how much you have deposited. Um, that will be expensive for the, uh, the fees on the uh, banking industry where this money, FDIC money, comes from, but it will stop uh, any further uh, banks from going under, and that's a good thing. Some of the implications of this no-limit guarantee. Michael Bussler, public policy analyst and professor of finance at Stockton University, thank you so much for your analysis. Thank you. My pleasure. More on the after effects of the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank collapses. Bank stocks tumbled yesterday on worries about what's next to break. Investors are on high alert for banks with similar issues. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the fallout from the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history. Banks below those deemed too big to fail saw enormous pressure on Monday. Shares of First Republic Bank took a nosedive, dropping 60% in pre-market trading. PacWest tumbled 35% in the pre-market session. Western Alliance had their shares plummet by over 80%, their largest one-day drop ever. They climbed a bit during the day to close down 47%. Charles Schwab's stock fell 23% during Monday's trading session, but regained some ground, closing down 11%. That's despite the bank's assurances of being in healthy conditions. Shares of other regional banks and financial firms are also stumbling, signaling continued unease despite the aggressive federal response announced Sunday to protect depositors. FDIC employees assured concerned customers lined up outside of Silicon Valley Bank headquarters in California that their money was safe. Feel free to transact business as usual. It's just a little, we ask for a little bit of time because of the bond. But many clients weren't taking any chances. We're here to uh, see if we can extract the money uh, quickly. No, I'm going to clear it out and uh, learn my lesson and we're not going to put the money all in one uh, place. According to the Mortgage News Daily, 30-year fixed mortgage rates dropped to just under 6.6% on Monday. The housing market could see more buyers if the trend continues. The rates are influenced by the 10-year Treasury yield, which has dropped due to the recent bank failures. U.S. inflation data due late Tuesday could inject more market volatility, even if investors see the Fed prioritizing financial stability. The Federal Reserve is investigating Silicon Valley Bank to find out how regulators, including some Feds, missed the financial storm. Their review is set to be publicly released on May 1st. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Texas Governor Greg Abbott wants parents in charge of their children's education. He thinks school choice is the way forward and is delivering that message at events across the state. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the governor's proposal. In Texas, we believe in freedom. Governor Abbott spoke last week at a parent empowerment night at Grace Community School in Tyler, Texas. And when you think about it, there may be no more profound freedom that's actually necessary 
than the freedom of parents being empowered to make the best decisions for their child. Abbott wonders why parents should relinquish that right to somebody else. That somebody else can, and in some cases has, steered a parent's child down the wrong pathway. He says it's the parent's responsibility to be the primary educator of their child. Abbott says he wasn't just taught the basics, like reading, writing, math, and science at school. We were inspired by our country's founding and how it stands apart from the, West, the rest of the world as the beacon for liberty and opportunity. But Abbott raised an example of a history teacher in Conroe, Texas, who he says taught students to disrespect the American flag. We will not use your taxpayer dollars to teach our kids to hate our country or to disrespect our flag. The Texas governor says schools are for education, not indoctrination, and called for empowering parents. Abbott added that parents need educational freedom to be able to help their children succeed. The governor says school choice with state-funded education savings accounts are the way forward. Such savings accounts would allow parents to use state funds to pay for education outside the public school system. Parents could use funds for various types of education, including private, religious, homeschooling, and virtual learning. The idea of education savings accounts has gained popularity nationwide over the last decade. More than 20 states have adopted various forms of school choice programs. However, opponents argue that losing any amount of state funding could be harmful to public education they point out that the average per-student public education funding is about $10,000, and that students already attending private school would also be eligible for the plan. Senior Director of Policy at Raise Your Hand Texas, Bob Popinski, says, quote, In our state, we have 300,000 kids that are attending private school. He says that's about $3 billion coming out of state school funding for kids that already attend private school. Papinski says rural districts with fewer students could be forced to cut staff or services if lawmakers pass school choice. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. President Biden expresses confidence that his student debt relief plan will go through. This was in an interview with The Daily Show yesterday. He also commented on transgender laws in Florida. Well, first of all, the constitutional scholars I've spoken to say the people challenged it have no standing. I mean, the court is ultimately, as much as they want to rule, they're going to, I think they're going to have to rule that it was appropriate for what I did. Uh, transgender kids is a really harder thing. What's going on in Florida is, as my mother would say, close to sinful. I mean, it's just terrible what they're doing. It's not like, you know, a kid wakes up one morning and says, you know, I decided I want to become a man or I want to become a woman or I want to change. I mean, what, what, what are they thinking about here? On the economy, Biden says he inherited what he called a gigantic mess economically and politically. On energy security, the president says his administration passed what he called the largest environmental plan in all of history. West Virginia wants to ban gender reassignment procedures on minors. The Republican-majority legislature passed a bill on March 10th to that effect. House Bill 2007 passed the Senate in a 30-2 vote. Under the bill, health care providers in the state will be barred from providing irreversible gender reassignment surgery to a person under 18. 
The ban also applies to puberty blockers. However, the bill contains certain exceptions. It would allow procedures on those born with a medically verifiable sex development disorder. Further exemptions were added for people under the age of 18 at risk of suicide. Republican Governor Jim Justice has not yet indicated if he will sign the bill into law. The American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association have all voiced support for gender transition procedures among minors. Australia has reached an agreement to buy nuclear-powered submarines from the U.S. It's part of a plan involving the United States, Australia, and Britain. Here are the details. The leaders of the U.S., the U.K., and Australia met in San Diego on Monday for talks on national security. The three countries formed a security pact known as AUKUS in 2021. Its goal is to counter the threat of the Chinese regime in the Indo-Pacific region. Today, we're announcing the steps to carry out our first project under AUKUS and developing Australia's conventionally armed nuclear-powered submarine capacity. Under the agreement, Australia is able to access U.S. nuclear-powered submarine technology. Nuclear submarines are stealthier and more capable than conventionally powered ones. Australia will buy up to five Virginia-class nuclear submarines from the U.S. They are worth around $3 billion each. The AUKUS agreement we confirm here in San Diego represents the biggest single investment in Australia's defence capability in all of our history, strengthening Australia's national security and stability in our region. The UK and Australia will also build new nuclear-powered submarines from a British design, with US technology and support. The first submarines are expected to be completed by the late 2030s. The submarines will carry conventional, non-nuclear weapons. AUKUS has one overriding objective, to enhance the stability of the Indo-Pacific amid rapidly shifting global dynamics. In this first project, this first project is only beginning. More partnerships, more potential, more peace and security in the region lies ahead. During the meeting, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak also pledged to boost the domestic defense budget. He said the UK will, for the first time, move the baseline commitment from 2% of the GDP to 2.5% of the GDP. That means over $6 billion in the next two years. This is how Sunak assesses the threats that AUKUS faces. But more broadly about China, I think it's just clear that it represents a systemic challenge to us and the world order. It's a country with fundamentally different values to ours, and its behavior over the past few years has been concerning. More authoritarian at home, more assertive overseas. The three leaders said in a joint statement that their countries have worked for decades to sustain peace, stability, and prosperity around the globe. And they say that Monday's deal will help them advance these goals. Illegal immigrants entering the U.S. have now set their sights on a new destination, Canada. In January alone, crossings neared 5,000 at the U.S.-Canada border. On a lonely frozen stretch of upstate New York, a dead end. This is where the U.S. and Canada meet at a makeshift unauthorized crossing known as Roxham Road. Anyone who treks across the border here into Quebec is told by Canadian authorities they will be immediately arrested. I have to advise you it's illegal to enter Canada here. Right now you're under arrest for crossing the border of Canada. It's illegal to enter Canada here. If you do so, you will be placed under arrest by the police. But every day, a seemingly endless stream of asylum seekers intent on trying to find safe haven in yet another country cross the line anyway. Come right in there. I'll take your bag. Warnings are everywhere on this road in Champlain, New York. 
but they don't deter the stream of people, many of whom have cobbled together a way to get to Manhattan, then take a bus to a town 28 miles south of here, and then pay a driver to drop them off at this tiny corridor. They're unaware of what lies ahead and the cold they'll face along the way. These last few years have seen an influx in crossings that Canada is not prepared to handle. Simply securing appointments to obtain a work authorization can now take months or longer. This individual crossed in February, and you're seeing that their date's actually February 11th, 2025, so two years. About an hour north of the border, over here also, Abdullah Daoud helps lead the refugee center in Montreal. These numbers are a dramatic increase from the numbers that we were used to seeing uh, historically in Canada. The nonprofit working with the Canadian government to help guide refugees through the asylum process. December saw an increase from November, January saw an increase from December, February saw an increase from January. Canadian government figures show a record 39,000 unauthorized entries into Quebec from the U.S. in 2022. Nearly all, according to experts, entered through Roxham Road. In January alone, crossings here neared 5,000. Compare that to just more than 2,300 a year before. U.S. and Canadian officials are discussing potential changes to the Safe Third Country Agreement. A loophole in that treaty is incentivizing migrants crossing from the U.S. to use Roxham Road. Authorities in Texas are urging people to avoid crossing into the border towns of Mexico and advocating that drug cartels should be labeled terrorist organizations. The warning comes after the kidnapping of four Americans last week, leaving two of them dead. We're very concerned at the state level, and that's why, you know, because of the increased violence and the fact that the Mexican drug cartels represent a significant threat to anyone who crosses into Mexico, and just the, the sheer, you know, volatile nature of these of these criminal organizations and the increased violence, that's why we strongly urge anyone to avoid crossing into Mexico, especially at this time. The Texas Department of Public Safety warns tourists to be aware there has even been a cartel presence in some of Mexico's most popular resort areas. Those who still want to travel to those locations are advised to contact the U.S. consulate, travel in groups, and be aware of their surroundings. Since last year, Mexico has seen a jump in U.S. tourists. The fatal kidnapping was one of a string of violent attacks in the country this month. But the president of Mexico rebuts U.S. criticism of Mexico's security record. Here are his comments. Mexico is safer than the U.S., and there's no problem with traveling safely across Mexico. That's something the U.S. citizens know and something our fellow countrymen know. Central Mexico has been racked by heavy gang violence. A bar attack over the weekend left 10 people dead. Meanwhile, authorities say seven women were reported missing last week. In 2020, the murder rate in Mexico was 28 per 100,000 people, about four times higher than in the U.S. The current government is on track to register a record total number of homicides for any six-year administration. And just ahead, the DOJ sues pharmacy chain Rite Aid for illegally selling controlled substances, including opioids. Inmates arrested for the January 6th Capitol breach and former President Trump team up to make a song. It's now hit number one on iTunes. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. The U.S. government sued Rite Aid yesterday. It accuses the pharmacy chain of missing red flags as it filled hundreds of thousands of prescriptions for controlled substances, including opioids. The Department of Justice says Rite Aid repeatedly filled prescriptions from May 2014 to June 2019 that were medically unnecessary. 
Rite Aid pharmacists were accused of ignoring obvious signs of misuse, including in prescriptions for Trinities. Those refer to a combination of opioids, tranquilizers, and muscle relaxers preferred by drug abusers for their increased euphoric effect. The Department of Justice says Rite Aid repeatedly filled prescriptions from May 2014 to June 2019 that were medically unnecessary. There will be no death penalty for the so-called bike path killer, the Islamic terrorist who killed eight people and maimed others in 2017. That's after a split among jurors on the death penalty. Seifulo Seipov, who raced a truck along a popular New York City bike path, was convicted in January. The attack killed five Argentine tourists, two Americans, and a Belgian woman. Without a unanimous jury decision on the death penalty Monday, Saipov will get an automatic sentence of life in prison with no possibility of parole. Saipov drove a truck down the busy riverside path running over cyclists before crashing into a school bus. He is an Uzbekistan citizen but lived in New Jersey. He sympathized with the ISIS terrorist group. Families of murder victims in Connecticut are reeling. That's after the state decided to reduce the sentences of 44 people convicted of murder. The families say the decision is re-victimizing them. They accuse the state's board of pardons and paroles of favoring the most violent criminals with sentence reductions. Fox 61 reports that the board attributes the sudden increase in commuting sentences to the pandemic, during which reductions were halted. However, compared to the 71 reductions in 2022 in Connecticut, there were only six between the years 2016 and 2021. A national gun rights organization is decrying the expansion of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives in President Joe Biden's budget proposal for 2024. Biden's $6.8 trillion budget proposal contains $1.9 billion for the agency. If passed as written, it would expand the agency by 35 percent, an overall growth of more than 50 percent since the Obama administration. The money would expand multi-jurisdictional gun trafficking strike forces, increase firearms industry regulation, and implement something called the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. In a statement, Gun Owners of America said the budget items are nothing more than incremental gun control that will make no one safer while denying law-abiding gun owners their constitutional rights. Uber and Lyft can continue treating their California drivers as independent contractors. A state appeals court ruled yesterday to uphold a voter-approved law called Proposition 22. That means drivers of companies like Uber and Lyft are not entitled to benefits like paid sick leave and unemployment insurance in the state. Proposition 22 exempted app-based drivers from a state law known as AB5. AB5 makes it difficult to classify workers as independent contractors instead of employees. Companies like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash spent $200 million on a campaign to make sure Proposition 22 would pass. A lower court ruling in 2021 said it was illegal. Yesterday's ruling reversed that decision. The court also ruled that the companies cannot stop their drivers from joining a labor union. That would allow them to collectively bargain for better working conditions. Illinois labor laws are getting a major change starting next year. Workers will be given 40 hours of paid leave during each 12-month period. Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a bill into law to guarantee that yesterday. Today, we will become the third state in the nation to require paid time off and the first among the largest states. 
Pritzker says working families face many challenges. He hopes the new law will relieve some of the burden. Illinois will be the third state in the country to mandate paid time off and allow workers to use it for any reason. Maine and Nevada have approved similar laws. The new law will go into effect January 1st. Former President Trump has recorded a song in collaboration with a group of men charged for their involvement in the January 6th Capitol breach. It's now hit number one on iTunes. The two-minute song is titled Justice for All and features the J6 Prison Choir singing the Star-Spangled Banner interspersed with Trump reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. The song was released on March 3rd and surpassed Flowers by Miley Cyrus to reach the number one spot on March 11th. Many January 6th defendants have found themselves incarcerated in the same wing of a Washington, D.C. facility. As many of the inmates remained in the prison for months awaiting their trials, they began to sing the national anthem every night at 9 p.m. The J6 prison choir formed as a result of this nightly tradition. Forbes reported that Trump recorded his portion of the song a couple weeks prior at his Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. And coming up, a Chinese rocket breaks up in space, takes a plunge back to Earth, and lands in rural Texas. A world-leading research institute has pulled out of its branch in China, marking the end of a decades-long partnership. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. A Chinese rocket broke up in space and its debris took an uncontrolled plunge back to Earth, landing in a rural Texas area. Entity's Sam Wong has more. The rocket had launched in June last year, carrying three military surveillance satellites. Those devices were aimed at the South China Sea. Up to this point, China has neither addressed the unplanned re-entry nor shared trajectory data with the U.S. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson has been critical of China in the past, calling out Beijing on carelessness and a lack of transparency. So far, no debris has been found. Officials suspect it could have fallen anywhere within a radius spanning hundreds of miles. This isn't the first time China has faced criticism for its spacecraft remnants. Just last year, pieces of a Chinese rocket booster plunged into the Pacific Ocean after a similar uncontrolled re-entry. Despite no immediate reports of damage, it led to a closure of Spanish airspace, causing massive delays for hundreds of flights. For most countries, re-entry plans are required for spacecraft. That's to prevent leaving an excessive amount of space debris in lower orbit. Doing so could eventually lead to debris collision with satellites. It would also pose great danger to civilians if pieces of space junk unexpectedly fall back to Earth. Beijing tapped a general sanctioned by the U.S. to be its defense minister. What's his background? NTD's Tiffany Meyer brings us a closer look. For the first time ever, the head of the Pentagon will have to deal with a Chinese counterpart sanctioned by the U.S. Beijing appointed a new defense minister on Sunday, along with four vice premiers. The new defense chief, Li Shangfu, is on a U.S. blacklist for buying Russian weapons. What sets Li apart is his technical background. Li used to be an aerospace engineer, and he once led a Chinese military branch responsible for speeding up China's space and cyber warfare capabilities. 
Li's appointment comes as Washington pushes to restore military communication with China. That stopped after former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last August. Responding to Li's appointment, a Pentagon spokesperson said the U.S. military could not comment on media reports about China's leadership changes. He added that the DOD had been clear about wanting to maintain communications with the Chinese military. The FBI and State Department have missed a deadline to provide documents on the origin of the COVID-19 virus. Congress requested the documents and still expects the agency to comply. A spokesperson for the State Department said that Biden has directed staff to share any findings with Congress and the public. The FBI declined to comment. A congressional subcommittee held an initial hearing on the origin of the virus on March 8th. Witnesses offered mixed opinions on whether the origin of the virus can be definitively traced to a leak from a research lab in Wuhan, China. The U.S. government might have spent more taxpayer money than previously suspected for research at a lab in China. It's the infamous Wuhan lab believed by some to have leaked COVID-19 to the public. Former federal investigator Diane Cutler told Fox News the lab misused U.S. taxpayer funds. That's via double billing and potential theft. Senator Roger Marshall hired Cutler to probe the funding used by the lab. Cutler said she viewed over 50,000 documents and that the U.S. government might have paid more than once for medical supplies, equipment, travel, and salaries connected with the lab. Cutler has investigated white-collar crime and health care fraud for over two decades. The information she gathered was used to launch a new probe by the U.S. Agency for International Development. The money in question came from both that agency and the National Institutes of Health. Lockdown orders are coming back to one Chinese city. Officials say they're dealing with a flu outbreak, but residents are worried about the return of the country's strict zero COVID-19 policy. Here's the latest. With patients again flooding fever clinics in Chinese hospitals, the northern city of Xi'an launched a contingency plan. It seeks to combat what the city called a flu pandemic. The scheme allows officials to shut down areas of the city in case of severe outbreaks. Measures include school and business closures and a ban on mass gatherings. Home to a population of 13 million, Xi'an was the first city in China where the Omicron variant emerged in late 2021. Now new controls similar to those devised for COVID-19 are unsettling the public. There seems to be a spike of flu infections in many regions. Some people suspect that the influenza A might still be COVID-19, only that the CCP has changed its name. According to former U.S. Army microbiologist Sean Lin, COVID-19 remains widespread in China. Some reports even say makeshift hospitals are still being built. Have you ever heard about any government building a quarantine facility for flu outbreak? In China's capital, Beijing, a hospital reported over 400 people waiting in line one morning. Most infections were among children. A lot of people. We've been accepting quite a number of patients lately. All of them are children with fever and flu symptoms. In eastern Zhejiang province, another hospital received 4,000 patients in just one day, half of them flu patients. Hospitals in Shanghai saw similar overcrowding. Other videos on social media captured outbreaks in Hebei, Henan, Tianjin, and more areas. An expert says influenza does hit China this time of year, but with COVID-19 dominating the past three years, there were no reports of large-scale flu outbreaks. 
It's impossible to tell the difference between influenza A and COVID-19 by clinical symptoms because they are similar. The only way to precisely distinguish them is through antigen testing or nucleic acid testing. Tang added, the sudden flare-up is fueling doubts about Beijing's transparency on COVID-19 and other data. In a surprising move, a prestigious French research institute breaks off ties with a top Chinese academy, closing a partnership of nearly two decades. Here's a closer look. The Paris-based Pasteur Institute has suspended its partnership with the Chinese Academy of Sciences. It also announced its withdrawal from a joint research institute in Shanghai. According to the journal Nature, the decision was made last December, following a year-long dialogue between the two sides. The Pasteur Institute was founded over a century ago by Louis Pasteur, the inventor of the pasteurization method and a founding father of microbiology. To date, 10 scientists at the institute have received the Nobel Prize. Since 2004, the French organization has co-led the Pasteur Institute of Shanghai with China, focusing on infectious disease research. The facility studied viruses like Ebola, HIV, and COVID-19. The Shanghai facility is now under Chinese supervision, and a Pasteur spokesperson said the name will change. Reasons for the breakup are still unclear, but a biologist working with the Shanghai Institute says it does potentially signal the end of an era of scientific partnership. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, Communist China has come under fire, both for concealing the origins of the virus and harsh containment measures on its people. Meanwhile, the West is seeking decoupling from the regime in multiple domains, as Beijing deepens ties with Russia and ramps up threats against Taiwan. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. It's still to come, a Kremlin spokesperson reportedly says that President Putin's control over Russia's Ukraine war narrative is weakening. And as workers in France continue their strike against pension reforms, garbage workers join the mix. Now trash is piling up in Paris. More shortly here on NTD News Today. A Kremlin spokesperson claims that Russian President Vladimir Putin's control of the Ukraine war narrative is slipping, according to a new report. As the war grinds on, Russia promotes its view of the conflict via news and social media platforms. But Putin's grip on the Russian information space could be slipping. This is all according to a think tank called the Institute for the Study of War. It says Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson Maria Zakharova admitted a change during a forum. It was focused on the practical and technological aspects of information and cognitive warfare. The spokesperson confirmed infighting is taking place in Putin's inner circle and added that Putin has, quote, ceded centralized control over the Russian information space. Parisians have to contend with uncollected trash piling higher by the day after garbage workers join strikes over the government's pensions reform. President Emmanuel Macron is still refusing to meet with unions and insists the bill must go ahead. Here's more from NTD's France correspondent David Vives. Rubbish is piling up on Paris streets. Iconic places in the French capital, like the 16th district or the Place du Trocadéro, are blighted by overflowing bins and uncollected garbage bags, sometimes blocking the pavement. It's the seventh day of the rubbish collectors' strikes against pension reform. Despite the cold and wet weather, the smell is starting to bother residents. I notice that there are rubbish bins absolutely everywhere. The dogs are happy, they stop every 10 meters. 
I find this absolutely unacceptable, insofar as there's a disparity between the neighborhoods, and one wonders why some town halls are not able to use private companies. I don't understand why some neighborhoods are lucky enough to be able to have private companies clearing all this up, while others are deprived of this option. According to the Paris City Hall, over 5,000 tons of wasted remained uncollected in the streets of the capital. Services in other sectors, such as energy and transportation, also have been affected by strikes, though were improving. Protests on the weekend against raising the retirement age drew far fewer people than the previous round of marches. Unions maintained that French people are voting their opposition to the reform in the streets and through strikes. President Emmanuel Macron has not yet responded to a union request for a so-called citizens' consultation on the legislation. The bill has now been approved by the Senate, but has yet to pass in the lower house. Meanwhile, new nationwide protests are scheduled this Wednesday. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. The high cost of childcare is a key issue for women in the UK. For a child under two, the annual price for full-time nursery care was about $17,000 in 2022. Here's the story. Last year, mother of two Louise Sharples found herself turning down a new job she knew she would love because when she added up the cost of full-time childcare for her young daughters, it was more than she would have earned. After 12 years as a charity shop manager, Sharples has now taken a part-time but slightly better paid cleaning job until her children are older. It's not really a job that I would choose, but I felt for the good of my family and for that little bit more flexibility, it was something that I needed to do. Um, I do feel a bit like I've put my career on hold since having children, based on the cost of childcare, basically. I don't feel like... I feel like I've taken a bit of a step back and I probably won't take another step forward until both of them are in school. A childcare bill of around $963 leaves her with around $118 of her wage at the end of the month. She's not alone. A survey of 24,000 parents published this month found 76% of mothers who pay for childcare say it no longer makes financial sense for them to work. But with more than 1.1 million jobs unfilled in Britain, business groups and researchers argue that acting on childcare in the upcoming budget could unlock greater economic growth. The Centre for Progressive Policy Think Tank estimates that around 1.5 million British mums would work more hours if childcare permitted. And a report in December by the Institute for Public Policy Research and Charity Save the Children estimated that accessible, affordable childcare from six months to age 11 will provide returns of over $9.4 billion a year in tax contributions and reduce social security spending. We also know there's longer term economic benefits uh, and that's particularly um, across the labour market uh, when you see that women particularly who are most likely to be able to most likely be pushed to drop out of work uh, due to care costs, able to stay in work, able to progress in work uh, and there will be real economic benefits from not seeing that loss of talent across our labour market. Children's charity Coram says the average annual price for full-time nursery childcare in England for a child under two was more than $16,500 in 2022. That makes Britain's childcare among the most expensive in the world, according to the OECD, taking up nearly 30% of the income of a couple with two young children. The government is reportedly considering reforms, but has not announced any plans as it fights to bring down its deficit in a cost-of-living crisis. But with a British election expected next year, the opposition Labour Party views childcare as a key battleground.
Coming up, paintings by some of the world's most skilled artists hang in a St. Petersburg gallery. Art historians take a closer look at the details and invite botanists to ID the flora. Legends say paper production came to Uzbekistan around 14 centuries ago. Now a skilled group of workers is maintaining the traditional craft. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. Botanists are taking a close look at paintings displayed at Russia's State Hermitage Museum. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on their research and how the natural world has influenced art history. The State Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. Visitors come here to admire portraits painted by some of the world's most skilled artists. Now botanists and specialists from the museum are studying the plants featured in the works. In general, it's always very interesting to understand what is depicted in paintings. You find it interesting to see a horse, a bull, a dog, a cat. Why not plants? This is the same. It's just interesting. The rose and species of the genus Rosa are the most popular plants depicted. In December 2022, the research was presented in an illustrated book. They painted not only petals, but they also depicted pistols, stamens. Some plants have curved pistols. This curvature was reflected in the paintings. Thanks to bold explorers and travelers, new, curious plants begin to appear in paintings. What amazed me was that a lot of plants from the New World were depicted in the paintings, like something that was brought from the United States. It wasn't just silver, gold, precious stones. Seeds were also brought over. By and large, the old world was enriched specifically with plants. Paintings often reflect certain misconceptions of that time. Like with Holy Family with St. John the Baptist and Angels in a Landscape by Peter Van Avant. Without knowing what the region looked like, the artist had to use his imagination. This is St. John with angels. Look, we can see again nothing more than the domestic apple. Here's the apple tree, plants. Everything is great. There were no apples in the Holy Land. They were not there. Even the curators interpret the paintings differently in light of the new research. Whether we like it or not, now we write not just flower garland, but a garland of roses, a garland of bellflowers, etc. You immediately think of a symbol, what it meant for an era. The recently published Hermitage Garden book illustrates the project and its results. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Turning to a type of ancient paper, it was once widely traded on the Silk Road. Now, a skilled group of workers is keeping those techniques alive. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. According to local legend, paper production came to the Uzbek city of Samarkand 14 centuries ago. 
Paper production first began in Samarkand at the end of the 7th and beginning of the 8th century. Then in Kazakhstan, near the Talas River, the Arabs fought with the Chinese. The Arabs won and they captured Chinese soldiers, including scientists and artisans. And it turned out among them, there was a soldier who knew the secrets of paper making. At the Maros paper factory, visitors can witness the painstaking multi-stage process. It takes around 10 days to make 200 sheets of paper. First, tree branches are boiled in a cauldron for four to five hours to make the bark soft. Here, we produce Samarkand silk paper from mulberry varieties. One-year-old mulberry branches are soaked in water for two to three days. After they become soft, the shells are easily separated from the wood. We then peel off the bark with a knife. In the old days, silk paper like this was used for writing manuscripts. Until the 18th century, Samarkand was the center for silk paper production in Central Asia. Samarkand paper was in great demand because of its smoothness and color, but its main feature was its durability. The value of this tall mulberry tree is that it produces strong paper. Because mulberry itself is a silk tree, it has all the necessary ingredients. It has glue and starch. Nothing needs to be added to it. In the summer sun, a sheet of paper dries in three to four hours. In the winter, it takes three to four days. Automation and chemicals aren't used. After the fibers are pressed and dried, the final stage of production is polishing. This paper is better because it lasts for a long time. It lasts for more than 2,000 years. And thanks to this paper, we can learn about our history. Today, Samarkand paper is used to create postcards, wedding invitations, and even clothing. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The remains of a Roman aristocrat and 61 other people have been unearthed by archaeologists in northern England. The unidentified woman's remains are believed to be more than a thousand years old. Her skeleton, along with jewelry, was found in a very rare lead-lined coffin. It was discovered at the Hidden Cemetery in the city of Leeds last year. Archaeologists found men, women, and 23 children at the previously unknown archaeological site. Archaeologists hope the 1,600-year-old cemetery will help them understand an important, largely undocumented period of history. It was the transitional period between the fall of the Roman Empire in 400 B.C. and the establishment of the later Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And just ahead, theatergoers in Florida are impressed by the world-class performance from Shen Yun. Let's hear what they said right after the break here on NTD News Today. Audiences in Florida say Shen Yun is a precious jewel. Here's what else they have to say after seeing the performance of classical Chinese dance. Shen Yun impressed audiences in Venice, Florida, bringing four performances from March 11th to 12th. Theatergoers said the performance is one of a kind. The uh, uh, excitement, the, the, the strength of the people, the, the dancing. And I like the combination of live performance with the background. You know, the way it's integrated together is just awesome, as they say. Yeah. 
very colorful, very educational, um, very upbeat, but, you know, has its reality in between the lines. Audiences were fascinated by Shenyang's aim to revive the 5,000 years of Chinese culture from before communism. Oh my goodness, I don't know why we can't go back to that. It was so much beautiful, so much more people-oriented than what is in China today. It's really a shame to see a beautiful culture being subjugated to the communists. That's not good. It's tragic what communism has done. Um, unfortunately, too many people don't see the dangers of it. And I thought it was very brave of you to bring this message, especially in this time when we need it so badly. So coming today and sitting in this audience and listening to your messages and seeing these beautiful people dance, I was in another world and I was so happy to be in this world. It's just beautiful that you're bringing the awareness because we're also lucky here that we don't have so much persecution and and rules but we're moving in that direction so it's a wake-up call for everybody some said there is a spiritual presence throughout the performance and added that the values are universal a godly presence and um, I think everyone should look toward God for help and for guidance and uh, and to spread his love, and you can see that in the show. Even religious and moral values seem to be shared amongst multiple cultures, multiple faiths throughout the entire world. I mean, the idea of just respect and caring for others um, and the sanctity of life, those are things that are shared in, in cultures all over the world. And, um, you know, so I, I definitely see that in the history and the culture that was shown today. Um, and it's something that was actually very familiar to me and very wholesome. So I enjoyed it very much. Please go on, and I will come back. I, I don't know where I'll come back, but I will come back and I will spread the word. Everyone needs to see this show. Shenyang is touring around the world until May. NTD News, Venice, Florida. Spring is the season of renewal and rebirth. It's not only the time to clean out your home, but also your body. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Mother Nature provides us with naturally detoxifying foods in the springtime. That makes it a perfect time to try a detoxifying cleanse. The best programs include self-care and nutrition education as part of the detox. That's a detox of the whole body rather than just diet. Let's get some tips and look at how to prepare your body. Take three to five days to prepare your body for a detox. For this period, eliminate dairy, sugar, chemical sweeteners, alcohol, wheat, toxic seed oils, and all processed foods. There are a few benefits to eliminating these ahead of time. It's less likely you will experience headaches and fatigue during your detox. Next, let's look at how to pick the right program. Not all programs are created equally. Do your research on who is running it and what is included. Most detoxes are between one and five weeks long. There are detoxes that are food-based only and others that include coaching, counseling, self-care and nutrition education. Have a consultation with the potential health coach beforehand. This will help you to decide what length is best for you. Next, rally some support. You'll need to get support from your family, co-workers and friends. If you can join a group detox program, even better. 
Holistic health coaches programs include the recipes and how-tos, but also a lot of coaching and support. And finally, let's look at food and drink. A cleanse or detox doesn't have to be a deprivation diet. Real whole foods are usually part of the program. Although some detoxes do focus on a liquid diet, you don't have to choose this option. And don't forget to drink lots of fresh filtered water or better still, source your own spring water. You can find natural springs by searching the maps on findaspring.com. Happy detoxing. This week is Sleep Awareness Week, and a new study suggests Americans aren't getting enough. The Apple Heart and Movement study found that only 31% of participants got the recommended amount of sleep. The American Heart Association says that's between seven to nine hours per night, but the average hours of sleep reported was less than six and a half hours. For the study, researchers reviewed a set of sleep measurements collected by Apple Watch over a four-month period. The American Heart Association has added sleep to their life's essential list. That's a set of key measures for improving and maintaining cardiovascular health. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in America. If you're planning to go hiking in Nepal, you'll need to take a hiking buddy. Five years ago, the country banned people from climbing Mount Everest alone. Now Nepal's government has extended that ban to the whole country. The country is home to eight of the world's tallest mountains and attracts hikers from all over the world. That's a big revenue draw for the country, but people who get lost on solo treks are costing the government significant search and rescue fees. Nepal says travelers who hike in remote regions must now hire a government-licensed guide or join a group. The country's tourism board says when tourists go missing, it may be impossible to track them on remote routes. It also says unlicensed tour guides have become an issue, evading taxes and taking jobs away from local Nepalis. In what could be one of the rarest attacks, an Ohio man is recovering from a rather odd injury. He was bitten by a zebra. Police responded to a home in Circleville, about 30 miles south of Columbus, and found a man with severe injuries to his arm. They used a tourniquet to control the bleeding. As they were caring for the man, the male zebra was lingering around, acting aggressive as he protected several female zebras in a field. Owning zebras is legal in Ohio. Another man who was also there told officers they should put the animal down if necessary. When the zebra approached officers aggressively, one of them fired a shot and killed it. The injured man is recovering well in the hospital. Another rare sighting related to animals, against the wind and snow, a herd of deer was seen charging across a road in southern England. Go on, girls and boys, off you go. Look at that lot. Fantastic. The Coast Guard team captured the moment while patrolling in the area. The Coast Guard came across the deer as they were leaving the village in the county of Norfolk last Friday. A rare ultrasound photo is going viral. A couple found their unborn daughter flashing a peace sign during an ultrasound test. The photo was taken at a hospital in East Chicago, Indiana. On it, the baby's two outstretched fingers are clearly visible. This will be the family's third child with an estimated due date of April 1st. The couple has come up with the name Eleanor, or Ellie for short. Ultrasound testing is one way for parents to learn about their unborn child. While the procedure often reveals cute poses, a Yale University doctor says a peace sign like this is highly uncommon. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. 
please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.